This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, Taylor Riggs, this is something you and I, of course, jumped right on uh, from this morning on Tesla planning a $2 billion offering just a couple weeks after Elon Musk was like, no, we're good. We don't need any money. What are you talking about? Dana Hall joins us. She's a tech reporter. She looks after all things Musk and Tesla, and that is like eight full-time jobs. She joins us on the phone from our bureau there in San Francisco. So, Dana, what do we make of this? Well, it's interesting. You know, originally the market reaction was sort of negative, but then it quickly reversed, and now it's it's up. It's you know it's trading at eight oh four. I mean, I think in, uh, analysts and investors sort of see this as a good thing. Musk and board member Larry Ellison are sort of buying token amounts in on the raise. It helps them de-risk their balance sheet. You know, yes, two weeks ago Elon said they didn't really need to do it, but it's like, well, why not? I mean, if people are willing to give them the money, like it seems like as good a time as any since the stock is so high. You know, Dana. Forgive me if this is a dumb question. Why an equity raise instead of a bond raise? Why did they decide to go that route? You know, that's not really um, that, that's a good question. I don't entirely know the answer to it. I just think that when the stock is high, it's pretty easy to raise equity. There's mm-hmm. plenty of underwriters really willing to get in and they don't want to have more. You know, they already have a pretty significant amount of debt that they're trying to pay down, so maybe equity made more sense. And so give us a state of Tesla right now. I mean, we talked a lot about it. I have recommended your cover story from a few weeks ago, Dana, (laughs) to everyone because it really just sets such a nice scene for where we are at this moment and was prescient in a lot of ways because it's only gone higher, uh, burning all those shorts. So what what's the state? What's the state of the company right now? Yeah, so Tesla is still. I mean, Tesla is not out of the woods. They yeah. run. They run a very lean operation, and they're always doing like a billion crazy things simultaneously. So right now, you know, it's funny. I was just reading their 10K this morning, and they're so understated about their their goals. And it says a key focus in 2020 will be our efforts toward establishing and expanding capacity for vehicle production at volume across three continents. So that's like something they've never done. They've got the factory in Fremont. Now they've got this factory in China, and they're building this factory in Berlin. So, like, 2020 is the year where they sort of really go global in a big way. And, you know, this is like new to them. They have never they have never done that. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think they have a lot of wind in their sails because for years, one of the big short theses was that, you know, don't sit on your laurels, Tesla, the competition is coming. And in 2020, there's going to be all these other electric vehicles from all these established automakers that are going to come and eat your lunch. And that really has not happened. I mean, it's kind of amazing. You know, when people people don't say, I think my next car is going to be an electric car, they say, I think my next car is going to be a Tesla. And, mm. and, and, they, and, they, and once they buy one Tesla, then they buy another. And you see more and more people who have multiple Tesla cars within their family, then they get the solar roof. I mean, and so they just have this kind of first first mover advantage. Um, and a big reason for that is range. Their vehicles have far longer range yeah. in terms of how many miles you can travel before needing to charge 
than anyone else has come out with. And that's, you know, I mean, Tesla has been a company for 18 years now. That's not, it's not a surprise that they have sort of figured out batteries uh, ahead of everybody else. Dana, like Jason said at the top of your segment, you have about eight jobs when you consider covering Tesla and Elon Musk. Another story that you've been working on is uh, they're fielding now a fresh SEC inquiry. This is just after they ended one probe. New probe is looking like it's being opened. What do we know about this SEC inquiry? Yeah, the disclosure in the filing was fairly vague. We haven't gotten any clarification from the SEC or from Tesla as to what it what it includes. It, you know, it's, it sounds it sounds more dire than it could be. I mean, because because a lot of times, you know, the SEC will subpoena a company and ask for documents and ask clarifying questions, and then months later we find out that whatever inquiry it was was closed. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Like on the one hand, the the, the inquiry about um, production figures and going private appears to have been finished, but then there's a new inquiry that was just opened on December 4th. And so we'll just have to keep tabs on the filings to see if there's anything that comes out of that. Well, and what it does feel like, Dana, and you can help us understand this is, once again, it's basically about what people are saying, and by people, I mean Elon Musk, and when, you know, this isn't, I I find it so interesting to, to some extent that a lot of these inquiries are essentially about behavior as it relates like telling people stuff, not any sort of convoluted accounting or, or anything like that. I find that sort of interesting. Yeah, I mean, like sort of the discrepancy between public statements yeah. and filings and, uh, you know, and I think, and I mean, but yeah, we haven't found like some huge smoking gun just yet. Right. All right. Dana Hall, thank you so much. Tech reporter for Bloomberg. A busy day for her. It is music to mm. a Bloomberg editor's ears when you say, well, I was <laughs> reading the 10K this morning. Never a more Bloomberg thing was spoken. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Jason, you know, it's so funny when we talk about some of the big companies like Facebook. Remember a decade ago when it was an underdog? No one really knew who it was. It was only available to college students. And now a decade later, it's a massive company, a company that we talk about all the time here. And along with being a big company comes a very big tax bill. So joining us to break all of uh, Facebook's $9 billion tax bill. Down. It is Sarah Fryer. Uh, she's a reporter here with us over at Bloomberg Technology. Sarah, uh, first kind of walk us through what is this $9 billion tax bill that Facebook is trying to fight? So the IRS is looking at their transactions in 2010. That was soon after they moved their finances, their profits run through Ireland, where of course they have a lower tax bill. And the IRS says that they probably underpaid them by $9 billion in that year. And so what the, gov- what the government's going to do is challenge Facebook in court. We're going to see them start in San Francisco next week with arguments. Facebook says they have up to 63 witnesses they might call. This could go on for weeks. And the $9 billion is really just the number that they provide in their securities filing that says this is the the extent to what our liability could be they could very well win i mean other companies have this is this is what they've done following google apple other companies that have decided to park profits in ireland in order to reduce their tax bill well and sarah one of the things that i find so fascinating about this and you point this out in your fully charged column is this notion of like 
Oh, Facebook, you're all grown up fighting with the tax man, just like all the other uh, big companies. <laughs> Put this in the broader uh, sort of narrative of Facebook right now for us. So Facebook employees have long told me that they feel over the last couple of years, they've been singled out, that people have criticized them for doing things that every other company does too. They were just trying to survive in a highly competitive market with the, with the giants, like, like you mentioned, Taylor, Google, Amazon. These are the companies that they really wanted to survive alongside. I mean, looking back at that argument from our perspective today, where Facebook is so dominant, they're so, they have such great margins. It, it was this all, I mean, clearly it was successful, but now we have to look back on all what they did through a different lens. And now they're no longer alone in being scrutinized. In fact, they're being looped into the same kind of scrutiny that other companies have faced in years past. Sarah, what do we know about some of the legal arguments? We know that they've been putting up some operations in Ireland. There's a lower tax structure there. It's legal. A lot of big companies do it. Still, the U.S. Tax Revenue Service isn't thrilled about it. But what are the basis of the legal arguments giving that it is, frankly, legal to do that? Well, a lot of it comes down to whether Facebook appropriately valued their assets in that year or whether they undervalued them for the purposes of taxation. So it gets really wonky. Uh, I guess what I would say is, you know, this is this is nothing compared to what other companies have already fought, in some cases won. Um, but it, $9 billion is it's still significant. That number is bigger than Facebook had to pay in the biggest ever fine to the FTC over privacy issues last year. So it could be a pretty serious trial. Um, one other thing I'd like to note on the topic of being considered in the same bucket as all these other companies, we recently learned that the FTC is probing not just Facebook, but all sorts of other major tech companies, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Google, in looking at their smaller acquisitions from over the last 10 years, trying to see a pattern of anti-competitive behavior in deals that maybe have been too small to report at the time. So definitely a lot of scrutiny now for Facebook based on things they've done over the last decade, including when they were smaller. Right. And it really is, you know, sort of part, uh, as you just very rightly pointed out, Sarah, sort of part of this larger scrutiny to some extent, and also this sort of existential moment it feels like we're having. And, you know, you mentioned Facebook employees being like, oh, everybody's after us. But I mean, sometimes they're really after you. I mean, some, sometimes we say about the paranoid, right. they really are after you. I mean, clearly the government is taking a much, much harder approach to all of these big tech companies, right? Only got about 30 seconds. Right. I mean, it used to be the media is, is unfairly critiquing us. You know, we are doing the same thing as everyone else. Now the government is a, a, treating everyone with the same amount of, of harsh scrutiny. So yeah. very interesting to see how this develops. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah Fire, tech reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our studio there in San Francisco. All right. Business Week does many things very well. One of them is write really good headlines, I have to say. It's a hallmark of this editorship by Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. As I say, does many things well, but this is especially good. I love this. P&G developing its next big thing in a lab buzzing with flies. 
Didn't expect to see that coming, but here it is. Keep you on your toes. It Absolutely. Joel is here with me in New York City, as is Jeremy Keen, Features Editor for the magazine. Taylor Riggs still with me out in San Francisco. So what's going on at P&G? Fly, that, like, this is on purpose. Yeah, they've been working for a while now. They've, they founded a unit called Ventures about half a decade ago that, uh, you know, designed to be an internal disruption unit and go lean innovate in new ways and this big old company um, has had this unit for a while been nurturing it and this year they've they've got in the past year they've got a line of insect products non-toxic called Zevo and they're working with the University of Cincinnati to develop them and get them out on store shelves and they're and they're coming soon but I think the thing that's significant about this big and old Jeremy said both those <laughs> words like this is being, those are not bad things the Procter and Gamble this is a 183 year old company amazing $300 billion market cap. So it's kind of like, it's almost like Spanish Armada, right? And like gigantic ship. And you think about how effective they are at, at bringing products to consumers. And that is like what they do. Yeah. What's weird though, is like they kind of haven't had a hit for a while. Right. Like the last big hit was the Swiffer. That was a while ago. Yeah, that was quite a while. All right, so Taylor Riggs, are you reading this from your little perch there in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and being like, oh, that's adorable, PNG. You're just trying to be like us. <laughs> well, I wanted to figure out, because I've seen a lot of this going on right now in Silicon Valley. As you know, there's a small little company that we talk about, Alphabet. Yeah, which heard of them. 80, 90% of their revenue comes from Google, but then they have this sort of venture capital arm that's reserved for these moonshot projects that are for innovation. And then of course they lose billions of dollars, but once in a while they can really bank on a big hit. I'm wondering if Procter & Gamble's trying to take a, a, a play out of the playbook there of maybe making this sort of a venture capital arm where they can put some money and try to be nimble, but it's risky, right? I mean, you could be looking at billions of dollars in losses if it doesn't pay off. Yeah, and I think that they've, you know, their their strategy is to make some good small bets and, and hope that they'll pay out. They're working with uh, M13, uh, another company that they partnered with to help them with some of the areas that they don't have a lot of mm -hmm. expertise in. And um, they're also, they're kind of priding this unit on working out and really tailoring their arrangements to different founders. So they're, you know, they're doing mentorships, trying to help people out in a bunch of ways. And, you know, if they feel like they have a big bet, presumably they'll make it. But at the moment, it's, it's a lot of nurturing different products. And but if they don't do that, to your point, Taylor, then, and by the way, it's 182, I said, 183 it's 182 but uh, much younger than you said <laughs> but uh taylor like you know if you look at some of the consumer products that have basically gone just direct to consumer be it harry's mm -hmm. or dollar shave club uh to to in uh women's hygiene space yeah. right like there's mm -hmm. so much money there and where the 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 png kind of weakness the underbelly if you will is you know, they don't go direct to consumer that often, right? They go to stores and those stores you can have massive reach with, except that becomes a vulnerability if somebody can come in and sell direct to the consumer that you used to have. Um, so I think they're trying, this is really an example of a, a company trying to be a little bit more nimble on how they go about doing that. In the process, they've ended up shedding brands 
Um, I mean, this is like a brand factory, right? How many brands did they shed? This was sort of at, at the same time that they were doing that leaning up program. They uh, they lost. I think it's over a hundred. It was yeah. it was definitely quite a few. So, but why why insects? Um, well, they did a lot of in classic PNG fashion. They did a lot of consumer research and identified some trends. Um, and what were those? Uh, well, they're. One of the big ones was non-toxic yep. solutions yeah, for different parts of the home. Yeah, you think about bugs, right? It's yeah. like you've got to use a chemical, yeah. and maybe you don't want to do that in your home with a kid around or something, right? Yeah, and I think I think they found something that's something like 85%. It was very high in any case. Uh, people, consumers, you know, worry about insecticides when they use them, the toxicity mm-hmm. of them. And considering that those, I, I think, occupy 95% of the spray market, that's a big opportunity. Right. Well, and this is clearly something that they've got to do. I mean, when you think about the disruption, and you mentioned, Joel, uh, a few of those names, I mean, the direct con- the direct to consumer names, excuse me, they are coming after these big consumer mm-hmm. packaged goods, right? I mean, it feels like every day, all you have to do is ride the New York City subway to see, you know, these ads yep. uh, for the types of companies that really could put and maybe already are putting a significant dent in in the PNGs of the world. Right? Yeah, and that was happening a half, you know, half dozen years ago, yeah. um, and they, they kind of saw it coming. And, and they've taken on a range of strategies. Some is to set up this kind of unit, and um, you know, in some cases they they buy these yeah, startups. There's M&A, there's right? different yeah. ways of you know yeah. ways of going about it, but that's been one. Of what them. were some of the other mega trends that they sort of were able to identify here? Oh, boy, that's. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one. Aging was yeah. another, yeah. right? Aging consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was uh, mental and personal wellness. Yeah. Um, they also thought that uh, male wellness was underserved in some respects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I love it. Just we talk about the strategy stories a lot. It's like that's totally how one of these venture like a venture, literally ventures, goes about thinking about this, is like, what's the bigger overall problem? And then how can we whittle it down and address it with new products, you know, non-toxic insecticides or, you know, aging serums that, you know, wouldn't otherwise be in the marketplace? Well, it's interesting, too, to think about it hand-in-hand with the M&A strategy in the sense of that, you know, we mentioned Harry's, that deal essentially getting knocked back. Just this you week, know, yeah. that just So the idea that maybe you can just go and buy things might not work. You may need to be growing this. Yeah, no, and I think you're a company that's as big as P&G. It makes sense to yeah. try different things, and that's that's what they're doing. And other companies are doing it, too. We mentioned that Bayer and Unilever yeah. and Johnson & Johnson, they all have their own labs. And Either you disrupt yourself or you get to... Yeah, all right, it. Taylor, yeah. so Silicon Valley, they're really worried about P&G, right? <laughs> I'm actually really wondering if P&G is worried about more activist pressure. Is this all in response to activists? Uh, Nelson Peltz, yeah, I believe, yeah. was was definitely a big part of the original impetus for it. And P&G, at least, and, and Peltz has said some things that are pretty complimentary about P&G since he joined its board uh, over the past year. Um, so they, they think that, that he's been assuaged a little bit. You know, it, to that end, though, uh, he's probably made a lot of money on this yeah. since the beginning <laughs> of... 2018 here it's uh well i while i get in this math right it looks like it's up 50 yeah 50 percent yeah like it's pretty impressive good for him he's made some money yeah (laughs) exactly activism the new face of just you know being a little friendlier uh great story tiffany curry wrote jeremy Keene edited he was here with me in new york city alongside joel weber the editor of the magazine as he said a really nice strategy story She's the one. 
All right, so this is your most read story on the Bloomberg, and there's a reason why. It's a terrific piece of reporting, uh, a profile, but some news. It's just just the kind of story we love here. Uh, The woman rising from Goldman Trader to its face on Wall Street, the writer Sri Natarajan with me here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio, joining me and Taylor Riggs out in San Francisco. Congrats on this story. Uh, loved reading it. There's so much to take away. And obviously, one of the things that grabs people is the first three words, the woman rising. We don't hear a lot about that on Wall Street right now. What's the backdrop? It's interesting, Jason, because even in an industry where men dominate almost every major firm, the dearth of women atop Goldman is stark. You just don't have enough women in the senior most roles. And this all goes back to a couple of weeks ago when Goldman did this big, flashy debut investor day where they had a series of senior leaders, one after the other, come out there and explain the inner workings of Goldman and why we should believe in their turnaround strategy. The one thing that did stood out for stand out for everyone in the audience there was that every senior leader on stage that morning was a man, mm. and that which is why it was a surprise. So we sort of tried to look around and see, well, who breaks the stranglehold of men atop this top tier firm? And the real answer is there aren't many. Uh, in in our conversations with several senior leaders at the firm, we came across just a small number of senior women leaders who are in every behind-the-scenes conversations when Goldman is trying to figure out how to make good on its pledge to add more diversity to its top ranks. And uh, Beth Hammock, the global treasurer of Goldman Sachs we wrote about today, is definitely high up on that list. So, Sheree, I think one of the interesting things is we don't know a lot about her. She's tended to be a little bit private. But what do we know about her career history? She's she's a fascinating, fascinating person. She's been at Goldman all her life. One of the interesting things, and look, when you think about Goldman Sachs, the first image that comes to mind is this high flyer, this this swagger that you associate with. The, the the big names at Goldman Sachs, the, the, the master of universe aura around that. That is not Beth Hammock. She's steeped in the financial plumbing of markets, likes to keep to herself. And one of the interesting things when reporting the story was not a lot of people at the bank, a lot of the senior folks didn't even know that her father was actually one of the founding executives of Renaissance Technologies. That is one of the biggest money-making machines in the world. And to think that a lot of people didn't know about that, I found that fascinating in itself. When she was uh, back in Stanford University, University. She was on their student council for presidents. Who, who, who was on that council along with her? John Overdeck. And who's John Overdeck? He's the founder. He's one of the brains behind the most successful quant hedge funds out there, Two Sigma Investments. Uh, There's just so many little things that we found along the way that we found to be fascinating. Stuff like Jim Simons, who was at her bat mitzvah, 13th birthday celebration in the 80s. Now the two of them sit on a board together. She, she joined Goldman in 1993's climbed her way through the ranks, and uh, today she's the chair of TBAC, which is an influential Wall Street working group that has the year of the Treasury Secretary. So she certainly has a weighty role. She has a key role at Goldman Sachs right now. And uh, if you listen to some of their senior leaders, they also say she's well-positioned to catapult to higher office at this 151-year-old firm. Right. So tell us the job that she has now and why it is sort of preparatory in some ways. And that actually goes to why we uh, wrote about Beth Hammock right now. A couple of weeks ago, when, when they did talk about Investor Day and Goldman said, you know, these are the reasons you should believe in the firm. This is the reason shareholders, this is the reason investors, you need to back us. They 
touted a bunch of business initiatives, new business lines, technology improvements to win clients. But you look at the three or four buckets that they listed out there to improve profitability. The one bucket that really stood out was this idea of funding optimization. Mm. That really is the role of the treasurer of the firm. Uh, the current CFO, Stephen Scher, actually told us that column sits squarely on the shoulders of Beth. And that is important. Goldman Sachs needs to find funding from a variety of different places. It could be overnight funding markets, it could be wholesale funding, it could be deposits. But as it tries to diversify, it's trying to grow its deposit base. It's trying to grow uh, deposits from corporate cash flows and reduce its reliance on stuff like overnight funding markets, which are not as sticky, or wholesale funding, which could be more expensive. And all that is important because, as you know, the more you can reduce your interest expense on that kind of yeah. stuff, that's essentially contra revenue because that will, in, at the end of the day, contribute to net revenue and make your firm look healthier. So that is why it's a key role that she has. All right, 30 seconds left. Can't ask you about Goldman Sachs, can't talk about Goldman Sachs, especially with Taylor Riggs out in San Francisco, without putting this in the context of some of the recent departures. Here's a rising star. Give us the overall view right now of the senior levels at Goldman. Well, clearly, and even the fact that you asked the question shows that it's something a lot of people are talking about. We're coming off, uh, a, we're fresh off a brutal week for Goldman Sachs where a number of their senior tech executives yeah. left. Uh, a bit of a shock when, when you trot out your tech initiatives and talk about how that's going to win new clients and a lot of brains behind that are suddenly leaving. You talk about your merchant banking initiative and how you will be the next Blackstone and better than Blackstone and the Apollos and the KKR, but your merchant bank division heads leave. So there seems to be a bit of tumult at the top ranks. We talked about it three months into David Solomon's reign a year ago. Yeah. 15 months later, the fact that it's still a point of conversation is a tad worrying. All right. Well, check out this story to get an even different uh, view of Goldman Sachs and one certain rising star. We're talking about Beth Hammock. The woman rising from Goldman Trader to its face on Wall Street. Sri Natarajan wrote the story. It is a keeper. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Jim Lowell back with us, Chief Investment Officer for Advisor Investments. Looking after more than $5 billion. He joins us on the phone from lovely Newton, Massachusetts. All right, Jim. Trying to get a handle on these markets, which I was listening to a promo for Tom Keen's morning show, and he was talking about essentially every morning we come in and it's a different feeling market, largely driven by what we've heard overnight related to the coronavirus in China. What do you make of that element as a lever in the markets right now? No question about it. It's absolutely a lever in the market. Uh, it's something that investors are, <clears throat> I think, unfortunately going to have to uh, withstand for, for probably not just days, weeks, but even potentially for months to come. Uh, that said, as long as your risk tolerance is in line with your overall investment goals, the only real recommendation we can make to individual investors is that they also uh, analyze their risk tolerance to headlines that, as you point out, 
one day uh, suggests that fear is the only course, only to reverse that course the following day when when hope of uh, containment of scope and scale, of, in particular the coronavirus, looks like a probable outcome. Right now we would think that uh, either trying to make an investment move based upon fear over coronavirus or hope over coronavirus just simply does not make sense. Uh, what does make sense, of course, is to stay focused on the fundamentals, uh, which continue to suggest, that at least in terms of the U.S. economy and in terms of what we know about the coronavirus, uh, remains uh, in relatively good shape. Jim, curious, there was a story out over from an analyst at Raymond James today that the Sox index and some of the chip makers, which have some of the heaviest exposure in terms of revenue to China, could be under pressure if we don't solve this thing quickly. How has this virus changed the way that you've now invested or perhaps pulled back on companies with big exposure to China? It hasn't impacted the way we're currently invested. But we definitely uh, side with Fed Chair Powell, who just this week, of course, testimony in the House, said that he's closely monitoring the uh, you know, the emergence of the coronavirus and its potential for disrupting not just China's economy, but the global economy as well. Uh, and we are, of course, asking all the right questions we think in terms of where, to what extent, and how sustained a supply disruption could be, not just in the tech sector, but other sectors, tourist-related sectors, airline sectors. Uh, and also uh, really trying to think through the ways in which uh, even the phase one U.S.-China trade deal may in fact be negatively impacted by uh, the coronavirus to the extent that it can't yield the boost that we were kind of hoping to see in business spending uh, in 2020 after being very constrained because of the fear of there not being a phase one trade deal struck in 2019. You know, uh, Jim, one of the things you have mentioned as we've been prepping for this is household debt. We talk about that this week in the magazine, actually, as it relates to China, not as it relates as much to the U.S. Where where are we in that element here in the United States? You worried? Uh, not worried yet, but certainly mindful, uh, especially given the fact that uh, while companies have been cautious, businesses have been cautious to spend, we still see uh, net positive hiring coming out of businesses, both large, mid, and small. So long as they're hiring, so long as wage growth uh, continues to rise, so long as uh, income and uh, spending are basically in relatively good shape, uh, we think that the U.S. consumer uh, and their household debt is it, a, is it a level that's not going to uh, be problematic yet? But uh, things can change, and uh, we wouldn't be in the business we're in if we weren't constantly focusing on not just what could change, but the rate of change. You know, Jim, we were speaking with an analyst yesterday who said that due to the wall of money that is coming into the bond market, that 150 is not fair value on the 10-year. He thinks more like a 180, 192. I've heard as much as high as two and a quarter. As you take a look at 10-year yields, where is fair value right now? That's a really good question. And I'd say it's probably somewhere in that range, maybe 180. The uh, the, the, the facts on the ground continue to support, at least here in the U.S., slow growth, not no growth. Low inflation uh, continues to suggest that this is an economy that has continues to have some legs despite all of the risks and fears that we know, including the coronavirus. Uh, and we have yet seen the bond market uh, throughout last year and again this year 
suggest that uh, equity investor optimism is overdone. Um, but we continue to think that with uh, reasonable chances for moderately more gains based on the fundamentals, reasonably good earnings, economic data supportive of growth, low inflation, that uh, fear is not is not the trade uh, that will sustain itself, at least at least not yet. All right, Jim, last question for you. As you look ahead next week, I believe we're going to get uh, FOMC minutes. What do you expect to hear uh, from the Fed? Because if I recall correctly, it was just as the virus was starting to come into the public consciousness that the Fed last met, right? I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's why Chair Powell weighed in on the coronavirus the way he did with his house testimony. So that might be the the new news coming out of the FOMC minutes. What we'll look for is effectively uh, the consensus view from the Fed in terms of not just the U.S. economy, but also, of course, we know all of last year, and, and with particular regard to their to the rate uh, to the rate hikes that we saw. Uh, sorry, the rate cuts we saw. The Fed is very concerned about cross currents, whether they be political, whether they be trade, whether they be uh, coronavirus related. So we'll certainly be paying attention as we always do to the minutes and what they reflect, because we like to have the Fed in our corner, and we like to know how they view that corner. All right, Jim Lowell, thank you so much. Chief Investment Officer, excuse me, for Advisor Investments, looking after a little over $5 billion there. Joined us on the phone from Newton, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.